Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. It's Friday, February the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jennifer Bray is here in studio. Hi, Jen. Hi. Pat Leahy is in Brussels. Hi, Pat. Bonjour. You've been over there covering the shortest summit in EU history, it sort of looks like, Pat. Very tidy summit yesterday, Hugh. Yeah, it, um, it was almost over before it began, because even before the leaders sat down in, you know, full formal plenary session for the European Council, Michelle... Uh, Charles Michel, the rather grandly titled president of the European Council, he's basically the chairman of the uh, of the of the European Council, which is the uh, you know it's, it's the, the group of all the heads of government. But he was announcing that a deal had been done by Viktor Orban. And just to recap, this summit uh, is an it's an extra, what they call an extraordinary summit in that it is out of the the, the normal schedule. Of, um, of summits and it was called because they couldn't reach agreement on the package of aid for Ukraine at the last scheduled summit in December, which Jen covered for us. But um, so this was this was called uh, to overcome to, to see if they could reach agreement on the package, 50 billion package for Ukraine, overcome Viktor Orban's uh, objections to it. And um, and there was a bit of arm twisting on the, the night before. There was a, a dinner that most of the leaders were at the night before on Wednesday night. There was some arm twisting at that. There was individual meetings with um, uh, with the French President Emmanuel Macron, Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney. And then there was a meeting yesterday morning again before all the 27 leaders sat down together with, again, Macron, Maloney, Schultz of Germany, uh, Charles Michel, President of the European Council, and Ursula von der Leyen from the, the Commission. And they basically overcame Orban's objections. They reached a deal at that, with the result that um, the summit was was almost over before it began. Now, they did go on to have other other discussions, but the real business of it was, um, uh, was done by, what, 11 o'clock in the morning, our time. So, Jen, I mean, as Pat said, you were over there for the for the previous summit when they didn't get get agreement. And um, reading Pat's reports and other analysis of this over the last twenty four hours or so, it looks like Victor Orban got a good kicking. Um, that it was a it was a slice, slightly humiliating almost mm-hmm. experience for him. Yeah, definitely. After the last council summit, um, that Pat mentioned there in December, um, I definitely got the impression that this one was shaping up to be kind of a showdown between Orban and the other leaders. And it seems to be that that was kind of cut off at the past. And uh, there's a, I can sense this kind of exasperation clearly amongst European leaders with 
Victor Orban. And I, um, you know, I think they obviously had a number of tools at their disposal to get him to kind of come around. Um, the Financial Times had a really interesting report the other day where they, it's basically saying that Euro- European leaders, there was a, a, a briefing kind of put together and that, you know, essentially what was going to happen is that the EU would threaten to tank Hungary's economy. Um, there's also this use of Article 7 and Article 7 effectively would take away, it's kind of the, the absolute nuclear button, would take away um, uh, Hungary's voting rights. But obviously, you know, that would kind of be the very last resort. There was also talk of kind of um, fighter jets that had been on loan, I think, from Sweden um, on, on lease being taken back. And that makes up like an entire part of, uh, of their um, air force. So I think there was a couple of different tools at their disposal. Clearly, Georgia Maloney, I think, has a huge, I think she has the biggest influence on him um, and the other two uh, prime ministers that he met beforehand. Because they've they've had a good political relationship stretching yeah. back to before she became Italy's leader. Very much so, very much so. But I think overall, there, there seems to have been a complete breakdown in those relationships in the European Union uh, as a whole and Viktor Orban, but particularly between Ursula von der Leyen and Viktor Orban. I know that there's <laughs> deep-seated issues there and I know that in, you know, in his hometown, uh, Viktor Orban is kind of putting up posters, trashing her. Um, so I think that there's kind of personal stuff there as well. But I think overall there was a massive exasperation amongst the leaders who have clearly, because I remember at the last one, looking at him coming in and, you know, thinking, how can this one man hold up this massive financial package of aid for Ukraine. And I remember being kind of gobsmacked and obviously I could see it in him when he was walking around that he absolutely loved it. But for him, essentially, it's a, probably at its essence is him holding on to power at home. So Pat, what has changed uh, from the last summit to this one? Georgia Maloney has um, had some influences, as, as Jen says. Does it make a difference that there's been a change of government in Poland? The previous government was another was another Orban ally, or is it really a question of the big the big beasts, the big countries in in Europe deciding they've they've had enough and really putting the boot in? I think it's kind of a mixture of all those things. I think the political context shifted uh, a little and you you can't ignore what's happening in the United States where Congress is holding up another package of Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukrainian aid there. And there is a sense, of course, also in Europe's consideration, not just of Ukraine, but of global affairs more generally, that we may be heading into a second Trump administration and that Europe defence-wise and in terms of assistance to Ukraine may have to stand on its own two feet uh, a lot more. So the, the, I, I think the, you know, the, the stakes are kind of higher now or seem a bit higher for Europe now or for the EU now when it comes to Ukraine than they might have done in December when there was other things on the agenda as well. And I think that, you know, Orban was left in no doubt. And part of, Jen mentioned that FT story from Sunday about the EU's plan essentially to sabotage the Hungarian uh, economy, which is extraordinary. There was a lot of speculation around here last night uh, about the just the exact status of this paper that had been written and was leaked to uh, was leaked to the FT. It, it sounds to me like one of those things that you sometimes get that is written to be leaked to have a uh, a particular effect. It, but it, it's no... a bit like those, you know, the rather dubious looking chap who shows up outside your shop and says, be terrible if your windows got broken, wouldn't it? It's a bit like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's essentially the same, same, same sort of dynamic. Nice economy you've got there, Mr. Orban. It'd be a shame if anything happened mm. to it sort of thing. You know, there was very much a, a sense that the EU was, you know, preparing to get tough. And I think that Orban at that stage maybe made a judgment that he had pushed the envelope quite far enough and that this was a game that he couldn't continue to to play to his uh, advantage. Either way, the sort of concessions that uh, that that he got yesterday as a, you know, as a cloak to 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 do the deal looked very very minimal, and EU leaders were insistent that there wouldn't be an annual vote on this at the European Council. That they wouldn't give Orban an annual veto uh, on this package of aid for Ukraine, which runs over four years. So I think essentially Orban decided that discretion maybe was the better part of valor uh, in this in this instance. Doesn't mean that his relations with von der Leyen or with the EU as a whole have really improved, um, but. I, I, I think it was possibly kind of a recognition of reality and, and the sense that while you know unanimity is required for these sort of decisions on the European Council, of course, the political reality is that one country cannot stand indefinitely against the 26 other uh, countries um, if, if, if they want to Especially, do something. Especially, Jan, if that country is a net recipient of EU funding, as I think Hungary still is. Yeah, I think you're right. And the other thing as well is that um, for, for Victor Orban, there's a long game here as well, you know, um, and I think that that's very much evident in the kind of politics that he has played over the last few years. So he would be looking at a potential return of Donald Trump to the White House in the future. He would be looking at surveys and polls that show kind of a lurch to the right uh, in the elections in June in Europe. Uh, he'd be looking at kind of Georgia Maloney's EC or sort of nationalist group. Um, I've seen polls that show that they would do quite well and some of the more hardline groups and that shift really and what that would mean for him. So while he doesn't have very many allies now, and I think there was talk about uh, Slovakian allies and even that is not quite the case. I think he thinks in future that the tide is coming. The future looks bright for his the sort future, of politics. So while he may have made a concession or he may have been... And look, you can tell by the way it looks at what happened. I mean, he had to back down, essentially. But it's a short-term thing for him, whereas he has a long-term game. And who knows, that long-term game might actually work out in his favour. So, I mean, we should thank him for nothing else if not sending you over to Brussels to cover this summit patent, giving you an opportunity to test not just those fine Belgian beers, but the temperature of... European politics as we as we start to prepare for the parliament elections, changes in certain roles, which always happen after that. As it happens to you, I was doing both those things simultaneously. Well, that's that. I, I know no be- and no better man. And indeed, you know, scenario planning for for a Trump victory because I mean, as I as I think I recall back in 2016, nobody was planning for that because nobody thought it would happen. But it's a it's a realistic prospect this time around. We probably have a clearer idea of what might arise from it. Yeah, and it is you know, the thing that hangs over everything here in, in Brussels. Of course, people are very focused on the European elections in June and on the, you know, the new commission. The new commission will come in in the autumn, but I guess all the appointments or all the nominations to it will be made uh, in the summer. And, you know, that involves, that is, that's a really important thing for the leaders because it involves, you know, jobs for top politicians and top politicians tend to be interested in discussions and deliberations about jobs for top politicians. It'll not surprise anybody to hear. So, you know, look, that is a, that, that is certainly, and I suppose if you look at the context of those elections, with the possibility of, you know, a surge in support for for far right parties, 
um, for anti-immigration candidates. Immigration is the subject that is roiling all of the countries in Europe. We see that recently in the Dutch general election and so forth. So that is, you know, that's on everybody's mind here. But overhanging all of that is the sense that, you know, they may be looking at a return of Trump. And the, re- the return of, you know, Trump, Trump 2.0 is different to uh, Trump 1.0, not least because I suppose we know of his, of his uh, you know, we, we know of his attitude to NATO with this issue, his, his, you know, celebrated isn't the right word, but his notorious comments to Ursula von der Leyen uh, saying that, you know, the US would not come to Europe's aid militarily. And, and that would be one thing, but that is now the context has changed even for that because we're, you know, the context is now obviously the war that's happening in Ukraine and a militarily expansionist and revanchist Russia that, uh, you know, is, is obviously a massive cause of concern for everybody in the EU, but particularly for countries like the Baltics you know, who are EU and NATO members, and they are looking at, you know, the evaporation of American security guarantees at a time when Russia is, uh, you know, in, in obviously in a, in a position where it's eyeing military expansion and threatening the countries on its borders. So, um, you know, that kind of couldn't really be more serious from the point of view of lots of EU members. You know, it tends not to get a lot of airplay in Ireland because we're geographically removed for that and we have, you know, an attitude to NATO that's very different to a lot of uh, EU member states. But it is a massive issue for uh, for most people here. Well, we're one of the very few EU countries that's not in NATO now, isn't it? Since a couple of other members have joined in the last year or so. Yeah, and I also wonder about the impact, you know, we were talking there about sort of Trump and the global tectonic plates shifting around and what that would mean for the balance of power in the EU and sort of immigration, like Pat said, being this really big issue. Um, I was really interested in the farmers' protest as well in Brussels, and it's obviously mirroring other protests. What was it like there, Pat? Was it, um, I saw the pictures and then the statues that got torn down. Do you think that'll be a major issue there? Yeah, it was a big. Um, it was a big story here yesterday. Partly, I suppose, because uh, because the summit, you know, ended pretty quickly in the afternoon. There was a whole load of reporters here, and there was a massive protest on down the road. But it was uh, it was very big, um, very noisy. People will have seen there was a, a bit of aggro at it, bit of tire burning, bit of water cannon action, as you get in all you know good farmers' protests uh, in in Brussels, but. I think EU leaders are pretty concerned about it. It's a massive issue for uh, for French President remind, remind Emmanuel Macron. Remind us what the, Macron, what the actual Macron. issue is, Pat. You know, there's different issues in uh, in in every country. Uh, one of the principal ones is that the EU is moving on to um, uh, is you know moving towards much tighter environmental regulations, and uh, this is something that farmers feel you know, is aimed at them and is disrupting their, um, is disrupting, you know, their established means of production. They complain about the bureaucracy uh, in terms of environmental subsidies. Some of them complain about competition from Ukrainian farmers. They're, in France particularly, they're agitated about the prospect for the Mercosur deal, which is this deal with uh, four Latin American free trade deal with four between the EU and four Latin American countries, the Mercosur countries, which has been going on for like 20 years. The deal was agreed in 2019. Uh, There was opposition to it from several European countries and from the farm lobby throughout Europe because they say, you know, environmental 
uh, that they have to produce f- food under strict environmental laws that are not applied in places like Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay and, um, and Uruguay, which are the four countries that are part of, uh, uh, part of Mercosur. And uh, they said that that exposes them to, uh, you know, to unfair competition. Oh, you'll have heard Irish farmers talking about you know, the unfairness of cheap Brazilian beef coming in that is rared in uh, uh, it, it, that is that is reared on former rainforest lands. That's that that sort of thing. So there's a, there's a series of different uh, there's a series of different issues. But European leaders very very uh, uh, concerned about it. There was a delegation went to meet them afterwards, including Macron and Ursula von der Leyen. They were sending out messages afterwards saying that, you know they hear that that they heard European farmers, they heard the message of European farmers and they wanted to help them and so forth. But one of the things that comes out of it then is that Macron said, uh, Macron has been saying that the Mercosur deal as it is now is not going to be ratified. Tisha Gliovaragher came out and said the same thing uh, yesterday. And um, so it looks like essentially that that deal is dead, at least for the time being. European Commission saying something different, but obviously if countries don't ratify it and both Veronica and Macron have said they won't ratify it as it is now, then uh, effectively the deal is, is certainly, if not dead, certainly in the deep freeze. So that's interesting because there's two big European issues which are also very important in Ireland, aren't there? The pro- farmers' protests uh, in Athlone, I think, this week and protests uh, around the country to, to some extent. But just to come back to immigration then, Jen, because again, as Pat says, a very hot-button issue across Europe and an increasingly hot-button issue here too. And we did see... Um, uh, quite a shift in certainly in public government statements on the issue this week. Yeah, so on Monday I was kind of ringing around to see what might be up at Cabinet the next day. Um, it's kind of part of the job really for Paul Corn on Monday you try and get the jump on what's going on. Um, and I noticed that people were being very secretive about some memo that was going from the Department of Justice and nobody would say what it was and that's when you kind of know there's something, there's something interesting happening. And... Um, Basically, what the government have decided and the way they characterised it at first is not really the way I think that it is. So basically what they did is a crackdown, I think, on the number of um, new arrivals into the country. So they added Botswana and Algeria to the list of safe countries. So, you know, a safe country of origin where, you know, you're not at fear of persecution, kind of violence, all that kind of stuff. Um, And traditionally, we would have had kind of higher levels um, statistically from those countries. Um, And Helen McEntee's decision to add them basically means the people who are coming in from uh, Algeria, Botswana and the, the eight other save countries of origin, they will have a faster processing time. So it will be rejected faster most of the time is the implication, isn't it? I think there was a figure going around during the week about 8 out of 10, 80% could be rejected. And, and this figure then came out that I think was talked about during a cabinet meeting that this could cut down on the number of people uh, in the system by 5,000, which is a lot. Um, do we, do same, we know how these judgments are made? Is that publicly available? Yeah, how they made this? actually, Pat was talking to me about this the other day. He has like really intricate knowledge of this, but basically you arrive, obviously you present to um, security, border security. Um, you make your application uh, for asylum if you're coming from one of those countries. Obviously, it's a very different process for Ukrainian refugees because they're um, under the Beneficiaries of Temporary Protection Directive. Um, and you, there's a process basically where you apply and you can be rejected. Obviously, you're entitled to appeal that to the International Protection Appeals Tribunal. I think there can be quite a delay there. So they're also looking to staff that up and increase the times there and basically to have a processing time of 90 days maximum uh, in and out. And at the same time that this story came out of Cabinet, our colleague, crime correspondent, Conor Gallagher, had a story that the government's going to begin 
chartering their own jets to mm. deport people, which is so interesting because the government have been flat out saying for the last year, people deport themselves. They say they don't need to, mass majority of the time people leave. And now they're talking about chartering jets. These two things at the same time, and look, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not, but the previous day we had our first uh, snapshot series, which showed that immigration racing to the top of the agenda over the last couple of months to be the number one issue on people's minds. So we had that and then this kind of, I think the government's very, very aware that they need to take some kind of action. I think they're feeling it um, and they're going for the avenues that they can legitimately go for, if you know what I mean. And there's been some criticism, I think, particularly in relation to Algeria, Pat, that, you know, Algeria has its problems and some of those problems can put people in danger if they hold certain beliefs and it's not exactly the freest and most democratic country in the, in, in the world either. So I do wonder, you know, how those determinations are made that a country is safe or not or if we have, we have visibility of that. But, um, maybe that's a discussion for, I mean, for another moment. But more broadly, coincidence or not, as Jen says... The government said that this self-deportation system was working perfectly adequately uh, for the last few years, and now it's changed it. That can't be anything but a reaction to the events of the last couple of months, can it? Yeah, there's, look, there's no doubt about that. And I, I don't think what we're seeing is, uh, like, we won't see a change in immigration policy in the sense that the rules will remain, uh, will remain the same. But what you will see is government tr- trying to make the system work much more efficiently. The The difficulty that they face is that our system is basically set up and staffed for the arrival of a couple of thousand people a year. Now there's between 15, 20,000 people arriving every year. And lots of them get stuck in the system. The system takes a long, the system is overwhelmed, takes a long time to process them. There is, Jen outlined correctly there, the process um, by which people apply and then can make uh, an appeal. But there's also a, a, a further stage where people can take uh, judicial reviews, um, uh, as in court actions, challenging aspects of how the decision was reached in uh, in their case, and that's the thing that can delay it for uh, that can delay it for a long time. But for now, what I suppose what government is concentrating on is trying to get those initial decisions for uh, the initial judgment, and then any subsequent appeal within the refugee system uh, done quickly. I think you know the thing about the. Uh, the thing about the, the planes, that's essentially is a, I mean, I think we probably, we predicted this over uh, over recent months, that there would be this sort of gesture uh, to bung a load of lads on a plane and fly them uh, and fly them off, not just as a signal to voters at home that the government is, quote, getting to grips, uh, uh, unquote, with the issue of, of immigration, but as a signal to, to potential uh, 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 migrants or asylum seekers who are in other countries that Ireland is toughening up its system. And that's the same thing that they're doing clearly with um, leaving people on the streets, you know, 600 or so people, not all of whom are on the streets, but 600 or so um, uh, asylum seekers who haven't been given any uh, accommodation. And um, that that seems to me that is very much, that policy is very much uh, as a a sign or a, a, a signal to people abroad that Ireland's system has toughened up. And, you know, you could d- 
debate the morals of that one way or another. But um, I, it seems to me that's very clear that that is what the effect of it Pat, is. Pat refers to our new snapshot sentiment tracker, which which was launched earlier this week. It's a very welcome addition to our coverage. And yes, immigration is the number one issue when people were asked what had they really noticed, what had broken through for them um, over the over the last month or so. I do always wonder about that question, or indeed, or, or indeed that answer. You know. What do people mean by immigration? The majority of immigration into Ireland is not from mm. uh, is not is not from asylum seekers. It's from people who have who are legally permitted to enter the country and are usually coming into work. And then, as Pat says, what the government is doing is it's managing the system that we have. Uh, it would say better, uh, but one could also say perhaps in in a slightly tougher tougher manner as well. I just wonder how all those things are going to play into our impending elections. Like are we going to see debates between different political parties about whether they're going to be claimed to be tougher or others? We know there are parties on the far right who want to get rid of our internationally binding agreements, but setting those aside, like might we see Sinn Fein, for example, putting itself forward as having a, a tougher line on managing the system? So, yeah, I agree. Immigration is such a broad concept, I suppose. But it, I suppose what the Snapshot series tells you is that of all the issues being discussed um, that emanate from government, this is the one topic that is kind of at the forefront of the mind. You can see from the Snapshot series month by month how it changes. You know, well, It bounces all over the place, actually. It does, yeah, and it's really interesting. Yeah. And some of it's very natural stuff. Obviously, you know, the, the month of the Dublin riots, crime shot right up to the top, as you would understand. So it's what's kind of in the public, public consciousness, in the public's mind. So it is, and it, I, as a self-professed nerd, um, I love this. <laughs> I think this is fantastic. And Pat was showing me some of the details. I was bet into it. But um, on your question of immigration, I think, and on Sinn Féin in particular, they have such a tricky line to walk. So they have their national space. I think they've lost some of that. I think they're aware of that. And I think they're spooked by that. And then I think they try just slightly move towards the right, just a little bit, just shift a bit and start to say, well, questions should be asked. And what about homes for Irish people? Of course, people are angry. These kind of comments. Um, and I think then, then there's a part of Sinn Féin's voting base that also doesn't like that. So there's mm. another kind of danger for losing So there's votes. a progressive wing and there's mm. a more conservative wing, I suppose and you could say. And they're trying to, like, appease both. But in doing both, you lose both. Um, and I think, uh, look, there's an opinion poll at the weekend and it showed that, um, you know, that their support, the gains they'd made over the last few years wiped out. That's just one opinion poll. But there have been, there has been a trend of stall uh, over the last couple of months and I think that is alarming them. And it just strikes me that of all the politicians and of all the party leaders coming up to the next election who have the most pressure on them. It has to be Mary Lou Macdonald. Because Pat Sinn Féin are the main opposition party. They're contending to replace the current government with a new government which they lead. Uh, this is the most salient issue in the minds of the voters, according to our poll this week. They need to have a policy on it, don't they? Well, yes, but my sense is that there isn't going to be a sharp dividing line between Sinn Féin and the government on immigration when it comes to the election. I think that um, I think that all the main parties are probably all moving towards the same destination, which is a tougher application of the uh, of the present rules. And um, I, I think that's probably where we end up uh, as a debate, that there will be fringes and then there will be, you know, the the basically the governing mainstream and the governing mainstream will all be in the one place when it comes to immigration. And that will include... Sinn Féin. 
we shall leave it there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the upcoming referendums. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs. Spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. And you're very welcome back. Jen, you've written a piece for this weekend's Irish Times. You've been lining up the different camps on the two sides of the yes and no side of the, or maybe I should say the yes, yes and the no, no side. Uh, or the of, no, yes. Or, or, yes or, no. Indeed, are there yes, no's and no, yes? I'm going there down a rabbit hole are. here. We might come back. Are there? I'm sure yeah, there, there are, are some yes, no's and no, yes. I'm not going to propose to scramble your mind with it. But you have talked to some of the key groups, I suppose, on the on the yes side and the no side. Who are they? So, I mean, do you know what? I might start with the no side because I think we know very well who the yes side. I'll run really quickly through the yes side. It's the obvious kind of players who you would have expected, who we've heard about in the last few weeks. Mm. You've got the National Women's Council. Um, they represent, you know, there's 190 kind of smaller groups under their umbrella. So that's a big chunk of the yes campaign. Uh, Family Carers Ireland, that was a real boost for the government when they got the backing of the carers. And this organisation represents hundreds of thousands of carers. And they've come in behind the, the government on this. So I think... That's obviously uh, of, of benefit in their campaign. And then you have Labour, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Soccer Dems, PBP. PBP are reluctant, yes. Uh, mm. uh, the Green Party, obviously. And the interesting one that nobody knows about yet, Sinn Féin. They haven't decided. They're having a meeting tomorrow. But the really interesting thing about this, and I'm going to go on total tangent now, but I'll be really quick. So Sinn Féin have... Oh, no, Brin came out in the plinth when he was asked about this. I think it was last week. A journalist asked him, are Sinn Féin going to back yes in the referendum? And he said, oh, yes, I expect it will be a yes, yes from Sinn Féin. Porrick McLaughlin went on Twitter the next day and said, contrary to media reports, this is not the position. And the media reports came from Ono Bryn's mouth, let's be very clear. Um, and so it's a little slap on the wrist for Ono Bryn again. And he, he seems I, to get those every couple of months, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, and he probably yeah. was just thinking, ah, yeah, we probably will. But that's not how it works in Sinn Féin. And the question is, if they, if they have to take this long to decide something which shouldn't take you that long to decide, what on earth would they be like in government trying to make a tricky position? Oh, we have to talk to the Orcorla in three weeks' time. Anyway, that's a total by the by. But you anticipate that they'll call for a yes vote shortly, do you? I know that there are parts of Sinn Féin, I've, I've talked to some TDs who, who actually genuinely aren't happy with the, the wording and some of them do think it might fail and there's a conversation there about what's the right side to be on. I think they will though. Are they critical of the wording from the left or the right, if I may phrase it that way? Are they critical of the wording because it doesn't go far enough or because it's an unnecessary change? Oh, I think it's because it doesn't go far enough. Okay. At least that's what they say publicly. I'd like to be flying the wall at the Arcorla meeting. So um, basically, a, a number of large non-governmental organisations, mm-hmm. which uh, should be noted, receive funding from the state? Yes, and I'm really disappointed now because uh, there was a, a Law Society event yesterday where a lot of the major players were there, Ivana Bacic, um, there was uh, National Women's Council, Brenda Power was on the opposing side, journalist Brenda Power, Rona Mullen, independent senator, and we were promised Q&A afterwards. And I really wanted to ask the National Women's Council this question but the Q&A was completely cut out mm. and we never got a chance but I, I will be asking that question on the trail. About the funding. I, yeah. I actually asked them if, if I could 
jump in there. I asked the National Women's Council about this a couple of oh, weeks brilliant. ago. And they, they said that, oh yeah, no, there would be no question. They could not use any public funding for campaigning purposes. Um, but it would be interesting to find out how exactly they propose yeah. to box off their various revenue streams and uh, and how they intend to ensure that the public funding and as i understand it they're overwhelming the overwhelming bulk mm-hmm. of their budget comes from the state so pat would that be a matter for the electoral commission to adjudicate on that or to keep an eye on that do you know Hugh, it might well be <laughs> but, but i wouldn't like to pronounce with any authority <laughs> on that at, at this like point a job of work for somebody to do next week i'm always like someone needs to text art o'leary i've got another job for you yeah <laughs> I think Harry McGee is on over the uh, bank holiday weekend. That might be one from. I he'll be, deli- he'll be delighted <laughs> to get your call, I'm sure. So the other side, then mm-hmm. the the no no side. Uh, mm-hmm. Who are they? Can I just say, in defence of the Women's Council, because I I'm not that I'm very critical. Well, I am. I'm not attacking them. I'm just <laughs> no. asking a question. <laughs> Neither am I. Why do you hate the Women's Council <laughs> yeah, so much? Well, yeah, you. Why do you hate women? No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, so uh, they did a couple of years ago. They thought that the wording didn't go far enough and they told the government, I believe, behind the scenes we're not backing it. So, you know, just to just to be totally balanced. So the no side, do you want to take a guess, Hugh? Um, I've got to guess the Iona Institute. That's involved. number one on my list. Um, mm. Yeah, the Iona Institute. So I had a chat with David Quinn. He was very interesting about it. Like he had a really good point. He was saying like nobody knows what this phrase durable relationships means and he's completely right. Um, nobody knows. And the government say we anticipate that will be tested in the courts. And my question around that is, you're asking people to make a change to the constitution to something that you don't know what it means. That's a big problem for the government. So the Iona Institute for the small minority of our listeners who may not know who they are, they're an advocacy group and think tank who represent, broadly speaking, a right of centre conservative Catholic position and have done so for many years mm-hmm. on a lot of these 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 social issue referendums and other issues which we've had over the last while. David Quinn, of course, is a is a prominent commentator from uh, from that perspective. So so hardly a surprise that they're opposed to these what are essentially yeah. liberalising elements of, of, of the Constitution. They do have a point though, don't they, that this was rushed through the doll extremely quickly. And so this question, like the one you've just mentioned about Mm. the wording, really wasn't very heavily interrogated. So behind the scenes, they spent nine months coming up with this wording and debating it and trying to figure out, you know, do we take this out? Do we add this in? You know, blah, blah, blah. So there was a lot of work that went on behind the scenes. I think when it was brought to the doll, it was rushed through 100%. Like there was no pre-legislative scrutiny. And I think the guillotine was used uh, probably in the Shanna debate if not both. Um, so the campaigners on the no side who say it was rushed through, they do also have a point. I mean, it, it was rushed through. Um, but like a lot of things in the doll are rushed through equally. I don't think it's anything particularly nefarious going on there. Um, so yeah, the, their own institute, you know, they the way they describe themselves is as being an organisation that promotes the place of marriage and the place of religion within society. Um, and David Quinn also said that his quote is, we believe the aspiration to protect a mother from being forced out to work due to economic circumstances is still a good one and should be retained. So that's their position. And and he says, Minister Gorman is correct to say a woman's place is wherever she wants it to be. But the point is that a lot of mothers who would like to be at home with their children cannot do so because of economic pressures on them. And that's also a good point. Mm. You know, um, I'm sure there's plenty of women who would actually love to, you know, be a mother at home. And they literally cannot survive in a home with one income if, you know, 
if they didn't work. So Which in theory a, at least is in contravention of that current passage of the Constitution. Exactly. So what hmm. exactly has this article done? Like nothing. And that's Roger Cook-Gorman's argument. He's also right. Who we had in last week. It should be noted that Michael McDool, who's written on this a couple of times in the, in, in the Irish Times, argues, I think, that, that in particularly one tax case in 1980, at least tipped a hat to this in terms of, terms of the rights of married couples. But uh, that's perhaps a little bit above our pay grades for today as to whether or not that is the case. But who else is on the, on the no side? Aintu, interesting Aintu, they uh, also had a meeting of their Arg Corlett. Now, I, I talked to someone in the party during the week and they said they don't intend to spend any money, print any posters, any leaflets. I don't think they're going to go like on a campaign trail. But uh, Potter Tobin, their party leader, will feature in media debates about why he cannot support the wording. So, okay. it's so they're the only political party, parliamentary political party unless, currently yeah, against it. Unless yeah. Sinn Féin decide, but I would be surprised if they did. And then we have a few other smaller groups the a Family Solidarity Group, it's a conservative group founded after, uh, after the 1983 referendum. They're raising They've been around for a very long time. I thought they'd gone away. They're, They're back. still around, Hugh. Still around. Uh, the Irish Women's Lobby and then a group called the Countess. And the Irish Women's Lobby and the Countess, would I be right in saying, are concerned with issues of the definition of sex and gender and those kind of issues, which, have, which are in the mix out there at the moment? Yeah, the Irish Women's Lobby, which is a relatively new uh, feminist group, um, they said that neither of the amendments are in women's interest effectively. And they also raised the issue of it being rushed through the houses of the Oireachtas. The Countess describes itself as a grassroots campaigning organisation campaigning for LGB young people. So those are both self-described as feminist groups. Yes. And then the other groups are it's essentially are, are, are Catholic conservative groups. Yes. So that's the. Are they named after the Countess in Downton Abbey? No, uh, I think they're named after Countess Markovitch, a statue of whom is just outside the door of the Irish Times here. That's right, so I'm that's surprised right. you don't know that. So that's the. So, the, so, the so that's your lot. Isn't one of the things with these kinds of referendums, Pat, that it can give, because of the requirement for equal air time in particular and uh, with, with, with broadcasters, it can give relatively small groups an opportunity to access platforms and airtime that, uh, that they wouldn't normally get. Yeah, for sure. And you, you can see, you know, that'll probably be a, a great advantage to uh, to AIN2. And, you know, AIN2 of you know, one TD, Patter Tobin, who split uh, from Sinn Féin uh, over, the, uh, over the abortion issue. But they, they're kind of, they're doing okay in the polls. I think the, I saw a poll recently, it wasn't one of ours, but it was a, a poll in which they were at 3% and uh, which is, you know, round about the same level as uh, people before profit are. And of course, they've got several TDs, but um, we hear an awful lot from from people before profit. So I think it's a, you know, it's a great opportunity for, um, it's a great opportunity for a group like, like AIN2. Obviously, some of the other groups are more kind of single issue groups are much more narrowly focused campaigning groups. But yes, your broad point, Hugh, is is correct that when you come to debates like this and uh, media organisations are trying to, you know, give coverage to both sides of the uh, of the debate. And uh, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a super opportunity. I, the them. last point on this, Jen, for, for, for the moment anyway, I saw a Vox Pop that we published this week where uh, our reporter um, went out, went all the way to Trinity, all the way past the Markovich statue and actually across <laughs> the road and through the gate and into Trinity and took a sample Vox Pop of the views of students on the matter. And they seemed mightily unengaged by it. And I wonder, is that what we can expect over the course of the next five weeks? Oh, I can't wait to see those expenses. But um, yeah, uh, do you know what? So I had a chat with Pat in the office the other day. We were wondering, like, is there, 
like resistance kind of on the left that we're not aware of. And I was kind of saying, I don't think so. But then I discovered that this is a whole thing on TikTok. Um, there are super engaged, really articulate young women on TikTok going through the constitution, picking out what they think, weighing in on it. And these videos are going viral. And some of them even mentioned our sister podcast. So like there are younger women in particular out there who do want to know what's going on. I, I think it's always the case that you're not going to have like younger people who are in college having the absolute crack going around, you know, pouring over the constitution. But there is, there are actually younger people out there. I just thought that was fascinating. I think it's great to hear. Constitution TikTok is a new thing. I look forward, <laughs> I look forward to uh, to tuning in or whatever it is the young people do with TikTok. <laughs> so I haven't figured it out myself. <laughs> Time has come for us to pick our favourite articles of the week from, uh, from Irish Times and irishtimes.com. Jen, what did you pick? I picked Miriam Lord's piece. So she had a piece uh, on Wednesday where she was talking about uh, Leo Varadkar effectively um, reminiscing on when he was in his 20s and what the housing market was like back then and how we're going back to those days. And we're back in those days and he seemed to be really living uh, back in his young well, life. He was in his 20s in the early noughties. No, he was in his 20s in 2007, I think. Um, but he basically was talking about where where the housing market was at at the time and where we're at now. Basically, he was defending Fine Gael's housing policy. And halfway through the piece, Miriam points out that during leaders' questions during the week, the topic kind of shifted to the St. Patrick's Day trips. So there's two schools of thought, right, about the St. Patrick's Day trips. And the, you know, there's, you know, all of our ministers going all over the world, uh, you name it, and they're going there. Brazil, China, India, Canada, America... Um, and the first school of thought is that this is a junket, effectively. And why are we spending our money sending these people abroad to just have a brilliant time? And what, why are the Green Party ministers flying, you know, when they shouldn't, you know, etc. Should be canoeing to she Canada or whatever it is. Canada. <laughs> but the, second, the second school of thought, obviously, is that this is a fantastic opportunity for Ireland to be showcased in a way that other countries are so jealous of, particularly our access the White House, I remember I went to one of the White House trips and an American journalist said to me, you guys don't know how lucky you are to get in here. Like no other country has this whole day where Ireland takes over the White House. So I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that. Yeah, this could be the end of it if it's bye bye Joe Biden though, Pat. Oh, I think the, um, I mean, you know, we saw when Trump was, uh, we saw when, when Trump was there before that the St. Patrick's Day jamboree continues just as it had uh, previously. I mean, like, Jen, I've done a couple of uh, White House trips. I mean, it's, it really is a kind of remarkable opportunity and uh, for, you know, for Ireland to get FaceTime with the, the president, but also congressional leaders. And then, you know, there's obviously there's the Oval Office uh, bilateral meeting between the Taoiseach and the president in, in the morning. But then there's a, an event in the White House that evening that all political uh, uh, leaders go to. So, you know, Sinn Féin will be go will be going to that uh, as well. And we saw this week where Sinn Féin got in a little bit of difficulty with its kind of pro-Palestinian allies on the left who were calling for it to boycott the uh, St. Patrick's Day festivities in the, uh, uh, in, in the White House. And Sinn Féin saying that, you know, they will be going over there to make the case for, uh, for the Palestinians. Um, I mean, if they, if they do spend their time over there criticising Israel and make this point in a column I've written for tomorrow that if they, Sinn Féin spends its time criticising Israel and advocating and lecturing Joe Biden about the Palestinians, then I, I think some of their audiences are going to be rather nonplussed uh, at this. But um, 
uh, uh, kind of gone off the point a little bit there, but um, I, I, I'd echo what Jen says. It's, I mean, it's it's um, it, it's it a has, it, it, for it has its value. I, I, my my piece is by Mark Paul. Mark was with us uh, on Wednesday, um, dialed in from Portcullis House near Westminster. He is very busy. He does an awful lot of work over there. He's all around, all over the country. And and uh, last week he was also in in Warrington in in Northern England. And along the way, he popped into a local kebab shop. The most popular kebab shop in Warrington and that gave rise to some uh, some musings on uh, on the kebab as as Britain's national dish which I never never really realized it was but uh, uh he he apparently hadn't had a kebab in some years neither have I had a kebab I was going to ask years. are you a partial to a kebab well you know back in the day I can't um, picture it you I can't picture it <laughs> back in the day <laughs> When I had uh, less money and less sense, uh, I might I might have a, a middle of the night kebab after after a you know what what is euphemistically described in Irish journalism as an evening of socialising, um, and a feed of pints. Um, but Mark, stone cold sober, went in and ordered a kebab named after this young darts player who was very much in the news for the last while. Apparently, this is his favourite kebab shop in the UK, and had a, uh, and had one of these kebabs, and it's a very entertaining piece. But he doesn't really get into whether the kebab is any good or not. That would be my You're only really criticism from a restaurant a critic kebab. point of view. Just want a kebab. You can't beat a tray of taco fries now after a rake of pints. Pat, taco fries or kebabs for you? I've sampled neither in, uh, in, in recent years, but I used to eat proper kebabs. I gave a, a, when I was a student, I gave a few summers in the, uh, in the factories of Germany, contributing to the economic miracle of that great country uh, in no small way. And, um, uh, and we used to eat proper kebabs there, that we would go to these you know, Greek or Turkish takeaways and, uh, and, and, and have kebabs several, have cur- several curry, nights a week. And they were proper kebabs. Currywurst, yeah, I wouldn't be a huge currywurst man, but you know, I wouldn't turn up my nose at it, Hugh. But sorry, uh, of yeah, course, yeah, Pat, so when he has a kebab, he does it right. He's like, none of your abracababra. <laughs> That's the real deal. <laughs> Shit. My your piece, piece Pat. yes, your piece. Uh, my piece was today's column from Jerry Howland, who writes on kind of politics and politics adjacent matters for us, and he is. Um, He's talking about a kind of a sort of a change in the national mood. The, the famed Howland antennae are up and twitching. And um, he, he talks about, you know, the, the black clouds or the dark clouds are lightning to grey and reckons that there is a, uh, that there is a sort of a, you know, a lightening of the national mood or an amelioration of the national mood, which if it is true, and I would like to see a bit more well, evidence. What is his evidence? Jerry is he just, what is his evidence? Is he just looking into his heart he, or... He's looking into his heart, but he's also looking at the credit union, uh, the, the credit union tracker, uh, which is no doubt a robust piece of research. But um, I, I think I would like, uh, I'd like a little more data before I would make such sweeping pronouncements. But I will say that if he is correct and there is a sort of a change in the national mood, then uh, that will spill into our politics in, in, in lots oh, of ways. That, that would be intriguing if the, the dark clouds are, are lightning. Uh, good news for the government parties, wouldn't it be, Jen? Absolutely. I mean, is the national mood lightning? Definitely not in Dáil Éireann, tell you that much. Well, does it ever? Anyway, we will be keeping an eye on the national mood, no, no doubt, over the over the weeks and months to come as we as we fueled by kebabs while, while, while munching on while munching on kebabs and a rake of pints. Yes, well, and maybe even that sometimes. But but for the moment, we are going to leave it there without any of those and say goodbye to you for this long bank holiday weekend. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks to Jen and Pat for joining us. Thanks to our producer Duncan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We'll see you next week. Until then, thank you very much for listening.